Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is made possible with the support of Hotel Connections, the global leader in crew logistics and accommodations. Hotelconnections.com. Clear, a leader in touchless travel. Learn more at clearme.com slash airlines. Seabury Capital Group, global reach, global scale. SeaburyCapital.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at AirlinesConfidential.com. He's a good friend and he's been a great partner in these past 64 episodes. He's Ben Baldanza, former CEO of Spirit Airlines, who now teaches about how airlines work. And if that sounds like I'm foreshadowing something, well, I guess I am. We'll get to that soon. Well, he sure does have a big announcement for us today. He's NPR's here and now transportation analyst, Seth Kaplan. Pushing back from the gate, this is Airlines Confidential, the show where we share the secrets of the airline industry and debate all the crazy things that happen in the airline world each week. Today, an interesting convergence in terms of the January schedules for big U.S. airlines. Plus, why not a 757 MAX or maybe a 717 MAX? Yes, someone's asking that. First, though, let's prepare for takeoff with this week's news. Yeah, because the 737 MAX is gone so well, right? Uh, We'll get to that. Early on in the pandemic, the giant U.S. airlines took considerably different approaches when it came to how much capacity to cut. Uh, For example, you go back to April, and United and Delta had both cut between 70 and 75% of their schedules compared to a year earlier, whereas American had only cut about 55% according to Sirium's schedule data. Southwest only cut 26%. I'll say it again, United Delta, like 70 to 75%, Southwest only 26%. And, and you can say, okay, Southwest, fine, domestic airline. But American, a global airline, only 55%. Well, I just jumped into Sirium to look at schedules for this month. And this is interesting. Let's take those same four airlines, Delta, American, Southwest, United. All four of them, this is in terms of weekly seats scheduled for January, all four of them between... 36% cut versus a year ago and 47% cut, a much narrower band. Uh, if you're curious, by the way, Delta seats down 36%. Delta's actually cut the least of those four airlines this time, whereas it had cut the most back uh, last April. Uh, United down 47%, but again, not real big differences. American and Southwest, somewhere in between. Uh, other airlines, if you get into the smaller airlines, Allegiant cut considerably less than any of those. It's down 24%. Spirit also uh, down more modestly than the others, 26%, but much less of a disparity than there was in the past. Ben, is that their philosophies changing or is it just that everybody is dealing with the same reality and now that reality is much more predictable than it used to be. And and there's just a lot less guesswork. And it would be more of a surprise now if one airline was doing something vastly different from the others. Well, Seth, I'm sure there still is plenty of guesswork. I mean, imagine being like airdropped onto a land you knew nothing about and had no map with a couple of friends. And you could imagine that one might say, well, I think we should go left. And the other says, no, I think we should go straight. And the other (laughs) says, I think you should go right. And that's sort of where the industry was in March and April, right? Is no one knew what was happening. And so American initially thought, well, we're more domestic than American or United. We don't depend as much on international travel as those two airlines do. So we shouldn't have to cut as much as they do. 
because we know nobody's traveling long haul, but we don't know really who's going to travel domestically. And if you remember, American was very bullish early on about saying we're going to keep a lot of our flying up, but then they quickly retracted from that. I think now what's happening is everybody's looking at, you know, maybe there's a little more travel this holiday season. And so take advantage of that. But everybody just has a better of sense of not only what's there, but what's not there. And they know where within their networks people are traveling, you know, more people going to Florida than New York right now. Right. And things like that. So I do think it is getting smarter about it. But if we're on that land, we still don't really have a map, but we've been on the ground for long enough time that we're starting to get a sense of what this planet's like. I think that's where the industry is. Yeah. I mentioned uh, the airlines that are cutting less than others. JetBlue, as they look at all the sizable U.S. airlines, is the one that's cutting more than some, down 54% for January. And I bring this up because, you know, I've seen it noted elsewhere that American and United perhaps doing some more adventurous looking things in terms of non-hub flying and so forth than Delta is doing. But in terms of the most important measure of all capacity, when you look at that, that's where you see, yeah, not that same disparity. So some of the kinds of specific flying has changed. United, for one especially, just really has reoriented itself toward Florida. Of course, Delta and American to begin with always have a big Florida presence, bigger than uh, than United. But yeah, it just that just struck me that uh, much much more similar than we've seen throughout much of the pandemic. And, and you know, Seth, yeah. if you, Seth, if you remember in earlier shows, we often tried to explain capacity differences in terms of geography. You know, JetBlue is based in New York, and New York is the epicenter of where people aren't traveling, right? Yeah. So of course they would cut more, right? And and some things like that, and who's more domestic and who's more international. But it it's that's still kind of making some sense here, but it's evolved because of how the schedules have evolved too. It has. And and by the way, you know, we've talked in recent months about all of the relative bullish capacity in Florida. But now, and this is something that I didn't fully appreciate until real recently, in Florida, I mean, somewhat controversially, but you have the governor there having rejected CDC advice and offering the vaccine to all seniors. I mean, it's limited quantities still, but everybody's 65 and older, as opposed to most or to many other states anyway, where, you know, just the frontline healthcare workers are getting it so far. Maybe people who are considerably older, who have considerably greater risks or live in a certain kind of facility. But in Florida now, a really broad swath of the population is able to start signing up for the vaccine. I have relatives who are getting vaccinated this week, uh, you know, late 60s, early 70s, that sort of thing. And so interesting that in that regard too, Florida, perhaps even more so than anybody expected when they became bullish on Florida capacity wise, we'll see if that adds up to anything in terms of airline demand, but you're going to have this somewhat younger, somewhat healthier percentage of the population there being vaccinated earlier than in other parts of the country. Well, yeah. And the way the vaccine rolls out and importantly, how that rollout may or may not drive elected officials to say, we'll be more open or we'll stop the quarantines or we'll allow restaurants to serve inside and things like that. Those are all going to be really related to when people really feel comfortable traveling again. 
right? Because we've talked about it in the past. It's not about the flight. It's about what you can do when you get there and the impact on people when you get there and all that. And I think that's what what people are uh, paying most attention to. And now, Ben, for that announcement, it has indeed been my sincere pleasure to join you, Ben, and you, our friends listening, for these past 15 months or so here on this show. And after today's show, got to give me a little bit of a chill saying this. After today's show, I'm going to hand my reins, but not Ben's reins, Ben's not going anywhere, to Chris Chimes, who's going to pilot this thing with Ben going forward. Hey, Chris. Hey, Seth. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. As I said, a bit a bit teary eyed here because uh, this is you know this has been an important part of my life here for uh, uh, for a while. But before we do, we, we should have we should have discussed this first. But before I hand the reins to you, you got to make me one promise, and that is that you're going to give Ben as hard of a time as the listeners and I have given him uh, these first <laughs> sixty four episodes. You can't let him get away with anything. I I think Ben can promise you that. Uh... I've been giving him a hard time longer than you have. So, uh, so I think the last time I saw Ben, I was waiting for my daughter in front of National Airport and I honked my horn. He was he was standing there and I rolled down my window and he thought I was his Uber driver. He started to get in the car and I'm like, no, Ben, it's me. What are you doing? So no, I will happily give Ben a hard time. So And you didn't offer him a ride, did you? you That's, that, exactly. So but you know, you're you're leaving some big shoes for me to fill, Seth. Um, I appreciate you letting me sit in the jump seat this week um, and uh, kind of take the ride with you. But uh, we promise to to keep this up in the manner in which you've already built it, and uh, and uh, make sure your your listeners continue to enjoy this podcast. No, you're going to be great, Chris. So yeah, thanks so much. And I'll tell you what, why don't you take the next item here in the show? You're going to be with us for uh, for the rest of the day and then going forward. But holiday air travel volumes. Tell us about it, Chris. Well, we're just wrapping up uh, this two-plus-week holiday period, and as we look at the holiday air travel volumes, you know, of course, it's always trickier this year with the year-over-year comparison for Christmas and New Year's than it is for Thanksgiving, one, because of the way the days fall, but also just because of this unusual year. But depending on when they fall, the travel period can be longer or compressed, more than two weeks or less than two weeks. That being said, we look at TSA checkpoint numbers for both holiday periods. And this recent holiday period saw about a 44% as many travelers as usual compared with just 40% over Thanksgiving. So there were more people traveling over Christmas than Thanksgiving, but nowhere near normal, but ever so slightly closer to normal than Thanksgiving has been. You've got health authorities still urging people to stay home, a vaccine being rolled out, but still months off for people. How do these numbers strike you guys? Well, let me step up, Chris, and say it's not surprising to me that more people would travel at the end of December than Thanksgiving for a couple of reasons. One, it was, you know, four or five weeks later. So someone who might have been nervous at Thanksgiving say, I'm not going to travel now, say, but I'll wait a few more weeks and see what happens. There was different news about the vaccines Thanksgiving weekend versus going into Christmas, Hanukkah, Festivus, however you celebrate the end of the year, right? <laughs> and so I could see some people saying, well, I now have a, a light to my vaccine even or know when that if there's a chance I am going to get it sometime in 2021. So maybe I will go see family. Also, Thanksgiving is a four or five day period generally, whereas 
the end of the year holidays, you can really think of travel from maybe middle of December through very early January. So it gives people a lot more time to maybe think about trips and say, I'll go for this period or not. So it doesn't surprise me that more people would go. And yet 44% is still a really low number, but it's directly tied to the fact that you had Anthony Fauci and other people saying, don't travel this holiday period. And the best way to celebrate this holiday season is to just stay at home and use Zoom. And Zoom and other platforms supported that by saying, we're not going to limit you to 40 minutes, right? And things like that. And so I really think that we're the, the whole travel world is just sort of stuck into this. When can we travel again, given when vaccines are rolling out? And the people who traveled at Christmas just were pent up enough and felt that maybe because they had some runway in their minds to the vaccine, said maybe it's okay to go now. So it doesn't surprise me that it's more, but it also doesn't surprise me that it's not that much more. What do you think, Seth? It's funny. To me, now that the vaccine is in sight, and like I don't know when I'm going to have mine, right? But it seems like sometime here in the next several months, I know it's been a bit off to a little bit of a slow start in the U.S., but you know, meaningful numbers of people are being vaccinated in the U.S. and around the world. It almost makes me less antsy personally, right? Like I'm better able to wait knowing that it's coming. So just talking personally, right, when it was who knows how long it's going to be, you made certain calculator risks where, well, gosh, I'm just, just not going to go forever without doing this or seeing this person or, or, or whatever. Now it's 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 kind of like, well, yeah, I, I think I can do this. I think I can wait. So I'm just talking me personally, and, and I can imagine some people out there being more okay with waiting. In other words, this would depress demand in the short term, right? But the good news would be if it's just not going to be that much longer, as, as everybody knows, at some point there is all this pent up demand. Uh, and I know you, Ben, have said, you know, it might not be in time for the summer because things would have to be rather good by April, May. Uh, and, and that could be a long shot. But I don't know. I, I think there, there are probably some people out there like that. And if it seemed like it was going to be another year, you might actually have some people buying tickets now who are not buying them because they feel like they can just kind of wait this thing out at, at this point. It's at least what's kind of going on in my family. But uh, anybody who has ever professed to know what was coming next during this thing <laughs> has uh, probably been been wrong more often than they've been right. But, but you, feel, you feel a sense of, of, of optimism now. Chris? Well, and Seth, you alluded to it earlier, too. It wasn't so much Dr. Fauci and other people warning about travel. It was what were you going to do when you got there? So for my own purposes, like watching social media and watching friends and family behavior, I was looking to see who was following the guidelines once they got to their destination. So, you know, we'll, we'll see over the next couple of weeks uh, how this holiday travel period impacts public health. I don't think a lot of people followed the guidelines as close as they should have over Thanksgiving, but perhaps they did over Christmas. So we'll see over the coming weeks. Well, someone requesting anonymity, although I'm not sure why this isn't anything terribly controversial, but we'll honor that. Uh, anonymous listener writes, quote, uh, almost every airline has a specific plane tailored according to the demands of that route. For example, wide bodies, uh, A320s or 737s, CRJs and Embraer's. Southwest, on the other hand, this listener writes, uh, only operates 
737s on every route. Why is the one-size-fits-all method successful with Southwest? And besides for maybe Spirit, why are they the only large domestic airlines like this? Well, I mean, you're describing a a model that exists many places around the world. Uh, Low-cost carriers in general uh, like to have that single fleet type. And and you're right that in the U.S., when you look at some of the others, although I could name others, too, I mean, Allegiant at this point is, is all the 319s and 320s, uh, Frontiers, all Airbus also. Uh, so so there, there are others, too. And then, yes, there, you have JetBlue that went with Embraer 190s and never seemed to be as happy with them as it expected at the beginning, right? Other airlines, Alaska, an, a short-haul airline mostly, but that does have regional operations. But no, when you look around the world, you see a lot of airlines doing that, right? You see a Ryanair or an EasyJet or an Air Asia or an Air Arabia and so on and so forth, all uh, with a single fleet type. And I think basically it comes down to airlines that focus more on cost uh, as opposed to airlines that focus more on optimizing for revenue, right? Because it's expensive to have different fleet types. It's expensive when you have to have different, lots of different mechanics and and pilots and and people to work on different kinds of planes. But then you're right, anonymous listener. Uh, You you have a fleet that's more tailored to specific types of missions. Whereas when you have only one kind of fleet type, you're you're more limited. It's cheaper, but uh, less revenue potential. Ben, is that basically the way to think about this? I think that's right. And Southwest is a real big airline today that operates only 737s. But remember, they used to be a relatively small airline that only operated one airplane type. And they and their business model was very successful using their lower costs than the bigger airlines, which at the time weren't just American, United and Delta, but included, you know, Northwest and U.S. Airways and Continental and airlines like that. And that all have been absorbed. But they grew with that model and they stuck with what they knew. So they said, this has worked for us. So they just kept adding what they knew. And what they have done, which is what other airlines who fly a single airplane type also have done, is they've said, we're okay not serving routes that don't fit our airplane type. One of the reasons that both Boeing and Airbus have put flexibility in their middle-size airplanes, like with the A320, you can buy the small, medium, and large, right? The 19, the 20, and the 21. And with the 737, you can buy different models that are different sizes within the 737. And Southwest does have different size 737s. So they get some flexibility within that range, but they don't have the real small end that tends to be served by the regionals and they don't have the real big end that tends to be served by the wide bodies. And they just say, we're not going to serve routes that really require those very small airplanes. So we won't go into some of the smaller places that big airlines fly with regional capacity, or we won't fly to to as many far destinations that require the much bigger wide body airplanes because those things do just complicate the business enormously. Southwest today runs their airline very much like American United and Delta do in terms of the way they think about who their customer is and trying to attract business travelers and such. But they're mostly domestically focused. The international things they do are very close to the U.S., right? They don't fly transatlantically or transpacifically. And so they're going to stick with their knitting because that's what has worked really well for them. And that is what, what that's what's given them their competitive advantage to be able to grow from a, a small airline in Texas 
to one of the biggest airlines in the United States. So I just think it really comes down to what's the airline's business model. And you can be complicated and try to serve lots of customers, or you can be simple, have lower costs, and say, I'll limit the number of customers I'm willing to serve within the niche that I play. Chris, I think one thing you'll find with our our listeners is that they generationally, we have retired listeners and we have people just getting into the industry, people still in school, uh, people not even in college yet. And I'm going to guess that this listener is among the younger listeners. And I'll tell you why. And, And Chris, I know you've been around the industry for a long time. If you went back 20 years, let's say, right, most of the legacy airlines were struggling. And if you ask anybody, what's the most successful airline? People say, well, Southwest and uh, smaller than it is today, but it was this very successful, growing, stable airline. And everybody in the industry was jumping over each other to try to be more like Southwest, right? And every legacy airline was saying, what can we do more like Southwest? And one of the big things that people looked at, if you read a you know case study of Southwest in any business textbook was... Uh, well, they just have one fleet type, and this is brilliant. And why would you want more than one fleet type? Because it's complex and costly and all those sorts of things. And there's still some truth to that. But what's interesting now is that we're in an environment where other airlines have figured out how to do it other ways, right? You look at an airline like Delta, which is, ex- I mean, set aside this past year, it's been awful for everybody, but had been an extraordinarily successful airline, despite all kinds of complexities, right? So it's interesting that we've come full circle to where, and again, I'm just guessing, but this is somebody who didn't perhaps live through that paradigm, either that or forgot uh, the first day of business school. A lot of people used to learn how uh, you should be more like Southwest and, and, and have just one type of fleet type. Well, Ben and I can recall the uh, U.S. Airways restructuring we both worked on, and you know that was at the time we were the smallest of the of the major carriers, but had the most complicated fleet, the result of multiple mergers and and the like. So the beauty of what Southwest has done, not just with its single fleet, and like you said, Ben, not all seven thirty sevens are created equal, but from the beginning, they managed expectations of their passengers. And having one fleet type was part of that, whether it be defining how they're going to fly, where they're going to fly, the product that they're going to put forth. But they have always been very good about setting expectations and meeting them. And that single fleet type and the way they fly is part of that. You know know you're going to get an on-time, pretty much an on-time airline. You're going to get a flexible fare, you're going to get few frills, but people understand that when they buy a Southwest ticket. So that's just part of their DNA going back to that single fleet as well. You know, Chris, I'm sure you'll remember uh, our one of our CEOs during our time at U.S. Airways used to say that U.S. Airways had the Noah's Ark fleet. We had two yep. of everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, time next for another listener question. But first, we want to thank Clear. Travel with confidence with Clear. Touchless, fast, safer airport travel. Clear's touchless identity verification is available in 34 airports nationwide, moving you quickly and without crowds through airport security. Enroll today at www.clearme.com airlines. That's www.clearme.com airlines. Another fleet question uh, from a listener. Joe of Tampa writes, would a 717 MAX and a 757 MAX be good replacements 
for the 7-3 Max program if it doesn't work out. Ben? Well, Chris, you should know that Joe of Tampa would be the Advantage Gold or whatever uh, your premium frequent flyer level that you prefer would be of this program. Joe, Joe's in Tampa. He writes some of the best questions, and we're always happy to get Joe's questions. I think the idea of a 717 max or a 757 max is a fun thing to think about, but I don't think it's going to happen. You know, the 737 max is an airplane that was now in hindsight, we can say with some confidence, was kind of rushed into production in large part because the A320neo was such a successful selling airplane. Airbus had the A320 that sold very well against the 737s, brought Airbus to a rough parity with Boeing in terms of that size. Boeing still won the big wide body world because Airbus hasn't been as competitive in that space, but for the 150-seat size planes, the A320s and the 737s were, you know, got to almost parity around the world. And then Airbus introduced this A320neo by putting a bigger engine on it, and that created this great new airplane that all Airbus flyers and some Boeing flyers got really excited about because it was going to save them a lot of money on fuel. And Boeing, which according to some reports, had been thinking about developing a new airplane, said, well, we got to get something faster to market that can compete with this NEO. So just like Airbus put new engines on their A320, they said, we'll put new engines on our 737. And that's what created the MAX. And so the MAX was sort of a reaction to a marketplace thing that now you know, with the, with the terrible things we know what happened with the Max and having to go back and re-engineer some things on it and rethink about what the training protocols would be and such, I believe it's going to be a very successful airplane over time. And that certainly by the end of 2021, I think there'll be a lot of them flying in the air and people won't think twice about getting on them, actually. But I don't think there's that sense for the bigger airplanes like a 757, which isn't made anymore. I mean, the A321 and the A321LR have really replaced that, or the 737-800s are almost as big as many people configured the 757s. And at the 717 side, really the A220, if there was a max, that would be it. It's a newly designed airplane that has all the efficiencies of that smaller airplane. So I don't think Boeing's thinking about re-engining the 717. That's what the A220 does. And I think a re-engine of that plane just doesn't make a lot of commercial sense. That's my view. And Boeing already has decided how they're going to compete with the bigger size single aisle or narrow body airplanes. And that's with the longer and bigger 737. So I don't think uh, they're going to bring back a 757 to do a max. Interesting ideas. But when you think about why the planes were created, what the competitive environment was, I think the 737 MAX program is going to work out great. And that is the size category that's the biggest size category that airlines around the world fly. There are more of that size categories than any other airline flies. So that's where all the competition is going to be. When you get a little smaller and bigger, I think those are different kind of products. Chris or or Seth, what do you guys think? Well, if you like this max talk, Ben, 
wait until the next block of this show because it, it, it gets <laughs> even more interesting. So I'll, I'll tell you, what, let, let's 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 hold it for that. You know, we always love when listeners write in to correct Ben, right? Everybody's favorite thing. But today, someone corrects me, or at least takes issue with something I said. You can decide if it's a correction or not. Airlines Confidential. We'll be right back. Seabury Capital is a specialty finance and investment banking firm boasting a 25-year track record of advising key clients in aviation, aerospace and defense, maritime, and financial services and technologies. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge, along with state-of-the-art analysis, technology, and solutions, as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburycapital.com. That's seaburycapital, S-E-A-B-U-R-Y, capital, capital with an A, dot com. The Airlines Confidential Podcast is now available on Apple, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, and many more. Use your favorite podcasting app with just one click at airlinesconfidential.com. With Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes, I'm Seth Kaplan. This is Airlines Confidential. Mike of Charlotte writes, Seth, in the last episode, you said Boeing has paid many times over for its corner cutting with the Max. I respectfully disagree with that. It's corner cutting allowed it to take advantage of grandfathered certification to rush a model to market fast enough to be an effective competitor to the A320neo. Uh, this got Boeing over 5,000 orders and gave them the fastest selling aircraft model in history. Boeing got paid many times over for their corner cutting. They haven't paid a price anywhere close to what they gained. And my guess is Boeing's executives would do it all over again. Mike, I think... It depends partly on how broadly or narrowly you define the corner cutting. So put it to you like this. The things I talked about last time, I was talking about specific corners. Uh, the MCAS system relying on just one angle of attack sensor giving a faulty reading to engage, right? And then the MCAS system also being as aggressive as it was and as difficult for pilots to uh, to. To, to disengage as it was, right? If Boeing could go back and have MCAS rely on two sensors instead of one, let's say they made, they'd made all the other same mistakes, but it just relied on two bad readings. You know, the chances of, of two sensors failing are, are, are just infinitesimally smaller than the chance of one sensor failing, right? If they had only done that, you might've had a lot of the same underlying problems, but you might never have had a plane crash. Right. So obviously at one extreme, if they could just go back and change that corner that they cut, but not do and even leave all the other things the same, of course they would do that. Right. Of course it wasn't worth cutting that corner. Now, depending on how much you broaden this out, if you just say, well, that was a symptom of the fact that they were rushing something to market because Airbus got lucky and Ben started talking about this in the last, uh, the last block, uh, basically you know, the reason Airbus went first, or one reason why they went first, surely uh, on the A320neo, is that it was just easier for them than it was for Boeing because they were able to slap new engines on the old airplane and, and they didn't have to modify the airframe and they didn't have to come up with something like MPAS. They were just lucky. The plane was higher off the ground. You could put the newer, you could put the big engines on the new plane and, and, uh, and, and it wouldn't throw things out of whack, whereas Boeing couldn't do that. 
right? So then, and then that's where because they had to move the engines, then that's where MCAS came from, and 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 all the rest of it. So so I think it, it kind of depends on how broadly or how narrowly you define it. But also on the other hand, you said five thousand orders. So let's set us across. Let's set aside the sort of the 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 corner cutting for a minute and take the other party argument. You said, well, they got 5,000 orders. They did. They've lost 800 of those uh, over the past couple of years, right? They're down to about 4,200 net, uh, even with some of the recent orders that they've gotten at pricing that they never would have had to take orders at uh, a couple of years ago. And and then, so, so, okay. So even right there, let's just say the thing lists for what, $120 million each, Let's say they sell them for half that, sixty million. Use whatever number you want, fifty million. Losing eight hundred of those, that's forty, fifty billion dollars in lost revenue, something like that, right? But then beyond that, the pricing on all the rest of them. Remember, they've only delivered less than four hundred of these, I think, or something like that. So those are the only ones that were out the door where they got the original pricing. Everything else, I mean, a lot of these airlines have the right to cancel because it's, at this point, they're just getting delivered so late. And once once an airframe manufacturer is a year late on a plane, usually the airline has a right to cancel it, right? So everybody's renegotiating the terms, right? And the profit on all of these planes, whatever the profit is on each max, five, ten million million, whatever it would be, is eroding because those 4,200 that are yet to be delivered are going to be delivered on very different terms in many cases, uh, than they would have been. So I don't know that that, it, that it's true necessarily that Boeing, if they could do it all over again, that they would. They obviously wouldn't do it the way that they did it, right? Because there are just some relatively simple and relatively cheap things that they could have done to take a lot of the risk out of it and and perhaps avoid the uh, the, the crashes. But at some point, I don't know, this was supposed to be the cash cow program, the easy win, the, I mean, pick your cliche, where they, it was just supposed to be money in the bank. And now, you know, the, the break-even point on the program is pushed just so far out into the future. And it may be that someday 5,000 of these are delivered and we look back at it and say, well, it was still uh, still worth it. But I, I, I'm not sure that that's as much of a given, despite what Ben said before about, uh, I mean, you know, fundamentally, this is still an airplane that, that uh, a lot of airlines are going to like. But in terms of for Boeing, Right, Ben was talking from an airline perspective, and, and, and I think that's true. I mean, assuming this thing, you know, gets some flying under its belt, and every people accept that, yeah, it's a safe airplane and everything. Again, airlines, uh, there, there's every reason to think sure that this will end up being a successful airplane for them. But for Boeing, this program, uh, you know, for a decade, will not be anything like what it was supposed to be for Boeing. What do you guys think about that? Well, I don't think we'll know for several years what price Boeing has paid for the 737 MAX uh, incident. So their relationships with their customers are going to be altered for a long time. Their reputation, they're going to have to dig themselves out of. And I don't think they're monsters. I don't think they do it all over again. So I take ex- exception with with that comment. But they've paid a price. Whether they've paid the right price or not, we'll have to see as this plays out. But their reputation certainly is something they're going to have to spend a lot, a long time uh, rebuilding. And like you said, Seth, they've they've lost a good chunk of where they thought they were going to be with this program, compounded by the pandemic. So they're going to have a lot of work ahead of them. Yeah, and Chris and Seth, I agree with both of you. You know, Boeing Boeing deserves to pay for the mistakes they made. Of course, right? They put a product out to market and and that failed and killed people in the process. And 
I don't know what the right price to pay for that is. But I don't think at all that they would do it all over again the same way, like you said, Seth. You know, they they clearly, at the time the Macs came out, they clearly must have had this sense that we can't require more pilot training than the Neo requires over the A320, or it'll be hard to sell this plane. But now they're going to sell the plane with more training than the Neo requires. And airlines are going to say, okay, I've got to put my pilots through simulator training, but almost any other plane they'd buy, they'd have to do that anyway. So I'm not saying that that's not a cost to airlines. It is. And I'm not saying that that won't make it a little harder to sell the Max against the Neo than it would before. It will. But the fact is, the Max offered great economics to the airlines, and it still will in its fixed version. And so to think that they wouldn't, with perfect hindsight, they wouldn't have done different things with MCAS and maybe not been so apprehensive about what the training for pilots really needed to be more confident in their product, right? I think they would have, I think they would have done all those things differently. Like Chris said, I mean, there are people who may not buy their wide bodies because of what happened with the Max. Or maybe the military will say, we have to think twice about the military products that Boeing makes. And I'm not saying that any of that's going to happen, but the reputational hit that Boeing is taking on this is absolutely huge. And like Chris said, I don't think we're going to know for years and years and years what the 737 MAX failures really did to this company. Well, and also imagine if, if, if Boeing could have taken all of the money and time that it has spent trying to recover and instead put that into a clean sheet aircraft. Again, keep in mind that we are at less than, I think, fewer than 400 of these delivered. With some amount of of, of all of this uh, money and effort that they put into recovering from this, they could have had the clean sheet aircraft, which would have required the new pilot training anyway that they're requiring now on this plane, which is still as good as it might end up being suboptimal compared to a clean sheet aircraft. Right. So, uh, so, so that's the thing too, right? I mean, here they are, as you said, stuck with, with the pilot training and airlines are taking the airplane anyway. So there too, right. Uh, the, the, they, they could have just gone back and done that. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know how to do that math on, well, let's say they had just started then and said there was going to be an airplane a decade from then available. Right. Well, Kind of like here we are, right? It's it's uh it, it, it's a decade later now. So even though this might over the very long term work out for them, uh, I, I think there's there's little question that they would have done a whole lot different. I, I think the interesting question is if you could go back now, knowing that you need. I'm glad you brought that up about the pilot training. Knowing that you wouldn't be able to match Airbus uh, over the long run on the on the training, w- would that alone be enough to say, let's just do a clean sheet aircraft? even though we're going to be later to market, which essentially they are now anyway, right? Because of how, how late this plane will be uh, delivered. Or do you do it anyway and you just do it a little more carefully, right? But, you know, Airbus is out there aggressively and successfully selling the A220. And that's not common to the other airplanes. I mean, the pilot, right. the airlines who buy that airplane are going to have to train their pilots to fly that airplane. Yep. And that's a cost of doing business for airlines is to yep. train your pilots to fly the airplanes you buy. Right. So it's, you know, and if Boeing created a new airplane, they pilots would have to train for that too. Yeah. So if the Max requires different training than the Neo, that 
in the scope of what it costs to buy an airplane and operate it over 20, 20 years, 20 years or so. I'm not going to say it's rounding error because it's going to be more than that, but it's not much more than that. Right. It's, it's, it's a cost, but not an infinite cost. Well, do you have a question for us? You can email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com or you can jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website. Finer Wine is next, but first we want to thank Hotel Connections. Hotel Connections, the global leader in crew logistics and accommodations. Hotel Connections is a Fortune 1000 company that makes travel management easier and less expensive. With their AI-powered booking applications, intelligent learning algorithms, customizable rules engines, analytics, and global negotiated rate programs. For travel, logistics, hotel, transport, and technology solutions, visit hotelconnections.com. That's hotelconnections.com. So, ladies and gentlemen, as we begin our initial descent on today's show, it's time for fine or wine. We listen to an actual customer complaint, and then we talk about whether the complaint is fine or if they're just whining. Ben, you have the complaint. Yes, I do, Chris. Richard of Houston is complaining about Delta Airlines. Richard writes, so I bought Comfort Plus so I would be able to work on my laptop. Think again. Person in front of me reclines her seat, almost snaps off the top of my laptop, and no ability to work on it for the remainder of the trip. Ridiculous. What do you think, Ben? Fine or whine? Well, I think this one is fine. Comfort Plus, as I'm sure most of our listeners know, is this idea of sort of a premium economy cabin where it's not a business class, but it's not maybe should I say as bad as coach right now? <laughs> it's not right. Normal coach, right? You get a little, you get a little more leg room, right. And, and things like that. So the, the whole concept of comfort plus or premium economy or whatever you call it, but Delta calls it comfort plus is that you're going to have room. I mean, that idea just in the name comfort, right? So when it comes to reclining seats, there's an awful amount of emotions around this, right? <laughs> and on the one hand, you want the full right to recline your seat, but you don't want the person in front of you to have that right because you don't want them to recline on you. So airlines that limit the recline, you know, get complaints from customers because they say, I can't recline as much. But airlines that allow you to recline a lot have these kind of problems. So I think if Delta is going to Market Comfort Plus as a way to be more comfortable and have more room, maybe they should think about limiting the recline a little bit so that you could actually work on a laptop when you're sitting there. So I don't know how big Richard is. I don't know if he's a particularly large guy. So plus his laptop makes it easier for him to get constrained when somebody leans back or not. But that wouldn't even matter. I think uh, Comfort Plus means you should be able to work on your laptop, I think. Am I being too hard on Delta? Well, what's interesting, Ben, is that they actually include more recline with Comfort Plus than they do with the with the regular seats. And I don't think I'm putting words in their mouth to say that, you know, the idea is, well, yeah, you've got all this extra room, so you should be able to recline a little more. But clearly here in Richard's case, Delta over-delivered on the recline, didn't they? And, you know, I'll tell you, I, I got a lot of complaints when I was the CEO of Spirit for all the terrible things we supposedly did. But one complaint that we didn't get 
was this kind of complaint because spirit seats don't recline, right? And so while you can't recline and spirit would get complaints about why can't I recline, they didn't get any complaints about somebody reclined on me. So it really does come down to a trade-off. And like I said, everybody wants the right to recline, but doesn't want the person in front of them to have that same right. And Ben, what what you did at Spirit is kind of what we talked about earlier too, with regard to Southwest and they're setting one set of expectations. Delta's got multiple products on that plane and they have multiple definitions of what the product is depending on the passengers. So when they set out various expectations, they're raising the bar for them to meet all those expectations as well. Uh, that's a great point, Chris. Do, do you guys think that there's somebody at the legacy airlines right now? Well, legacy airlines slash, you know, sort of the, the upmarket low cost airlines doing the math on, do we put in the spirit frontier allegiance seats? I mean, now that we're in a crisis, right? Because it's, it's times like this that tend to bring that kind of stuff out. Uh, it's, it's just interesting that despite what you said, Ben, and despite that, it might seem like, well, sure, some people would actually like the as spirit euphemistically calls them the pre-reclined seats, right? I guess they're considered more down market because that's why the ultra low cost carriers have them. And even American as little leg room as they might give you in back of the plane, right? You still have that ability to, uh, to recline. Do you think there's somebody at those airlines right now uh, thinking, do we go first on, having seats that, uh, that that don't recline anymore and see if uh, the other two match us? It gets complicated with these airlines too, whether they have, you know, screens in the seats or not too, sure, sure. because, you know, that, that complicates it as well. I think everybody's thinking about what the world's going to be going forward and how are they going to compete? So they, they, they might be thinking things like that, Seth. I, th- I think that's possible. I've always thought it would be funny just to have a seat that has the button, but nothing happens when you push the button. <laughs> <laughs> There's always somebody thinking about something at every airline. Yeah. <laughs> well, on final approach now, and certainly my final approach on this show that does it for Airlines Confidential this week, please fasten your seatbelt and ensure your seatbacks and tray tables are in their upright and locked positions. And remember, questions at airlinesconfidential.com. Or jump on the AirlinesConfidential.com website. For the last time from the Airlines Confidential Studios, I'm Seth Kaplan. And I'm Chris Chimes. And with a huge goodbye to Seth and a huge welcome to Chris, I'm Ben Baldanza. Talk to you soon. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.